Hello, my name is Chris Winder, and you're listening to Through a Scientist's Eyes, an exploration of how we know what we know, and putting a little bit of context on how scientists went through the process of discovering things such as the COVID vaccines and the other things. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the first four episodes going through the COVID vaccines, mRNA vaccines in general. Now I want to take a little bit more of a forward-looking view um, by looking back at, uh, selfishly, some of the work that I really understand. <clears throat> and we talked about um, the idea of a rheostat, the idea that there is uh, something out there that tunes. And that's where I want to start today. So as you recall from the previous episodes, when we talk about DNA, DNA doesn't exist by itself in a cell. So again, in the real world, in how we understand DNA, requires us to understand something called chromatin. So chromatin is, um, you've heard me use beads on a string, and if you look that up, you can find a lot of textbook versions that go through this. So we have this, this combination of a protein and DNA, and that's chromatin. And we spent a lot of we spent a lot of time so far just talking about the DNA part, and not going through too through too much on the the protein part. Other than to to mention that the protein really you know cancels out the charge of DNA because again DNA is a charged molecule, and that's what allows us to take this essential essentially a magnet a single pole magnet, and squish it together so we can get it into a cell. So. What is chromatin? Well, chromatin is really just, um, and, and we do this to, to the general public all the time, where we take a name that is, that is built on something else, and then we name the things that are built on completely different. So chromatin is made up of histones. Why? No idea. I, 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 honestly, I probably knew 10 years ago when I was doing this work. I no longer know, um, and, and I don't think it's important. What's important is that we have these protein called histones. Histones are part of the structural piece, and they, f they have the function of, of kind of masking the charge of DNA so that you can pack it together. There's four of them. There is, and they, they basically bind together to each other to form a cylinder. So the way you can think about it, the way I often think about it, is if you've ever had the uh, the cookies in a tube, where you have a tube of it, and you slice it up, if you then took all those slices and wrapped licorice around them, one piece of licorice around the whole thing, so you have slice with a licorice, and then you have a piece of licorice between them, and then put them back together, that's what chromatin looks like. So if we, if we focus on the cookie part, it's actually the, the cylinder isn't just one slice. Each one of those slices is, is in four pieces, so dissected into four pieces. Once you have that dissection, those four pieces, each one of those has a different number um, because they're made from different genes. So you have histone H2, histone H3, and histone H4. Why do we put the H in front of it if we're going to call it a histone? Again, one of those weird contextual things. Um, 
that I, I don't really remember. Uh, I probably should, shame on me, but uh, it's not important, right? So we have H3, H4, H2, and the one that I haven't mentioned is H1, and that's a whole nother kettle of fish. And the important ones for the context of the rheostat gene expression, as we've talked about it to date, is really H3, H4, and H2. And why do I say that those are the ones that are really more important? Because when we, when scientists start doing the experiments to understand RNA versus DNA versus chromatin, and went through some of this early on, there's really a couple assays that they use, so a couple tests. One is, does protein one bind to protein two? And as you can imagine, if you had it, if you're doing this by weight, when protein one and protein two is gonna be heavier than protein one by itself or protein two by itself. And this is one of the core assays in, in chromatin work and in a lot of things, is we can, we can measure weight. Uh, we can measure charge. We can measure a few other things really simply um, without really complex machines. And these are the kind of assays that you use when you don't know what the heck you're doing. Right, you don't wanna do a really complex expensive, time-consuming experiment if you have no idea what you're doing. So um, if you're going to spitball, to steal, <laughs> steal one of the business terms we use nowadays, you want the assay to be cheap and cheery. You want it to be something you can do fast, something that has very much a yes or no answer. And these weight experiments where we can run them through a gel and see a difference in weight, or we can use the Plinko machine and see a difference in weight, are really simple. Um, you know, as the person who's done them, they're pain in the butt because you're stuck in a cold room or you're stuck with these really, you know, just finicky conditions for, for the experiments to work properly. So you always have this level of doubt, even though your bosses think they're simple. Um, and, and having been on both sides of it, you, you get to the point where you think it's simple because you've done it so much, right? It's the whole apprenticeship version of science. Nonetheless, they're, they're an easy assay because they either worked or they didn't. And you can add your controls so you can tell whether you messed up the experimental conditions. So you added too much salt, not enough salt. You let it get too hot. You didn't let it get hot enough. You can add your controls that are done in parallel but don't have all the experimental conditions. So you can make it a binary question. Either it worked or it didn't. And then you can break that question down into, why did it work? Well, it worked because of one of, hopefully, two things if you've designed your experiment right. And, and you can constantly go down this till you get down to the, to the meat of it. And we th when we think about this with chromatin, and we think about this binding experiment, we can start to add things, right? Because again, as I mentioned, we can crack the cell apart and we can break it up into components. Once you know how to do that for RNA polymerase, you know how to do it for all the related factors. And if you, met, if you remember from last conversation, I had mentioned that essentially what they found is that RNA polymerase is in three parts. You have the enzyme that makes that does the polymerization. You have a platform piece, which is often called the general transcription factors or GTFs. And then you had this other stuff, which was really variable. But 
the really variable stuff where it wasn't always the same protein, wasn't always the same size, wasn't always the same protein complex, is where all the magic happens. And this is what I'm going to spend my time talking about. Because these are the specific transcription factors and they have all kinds of different names based off of where we found them, what they do, when they work, when they don't work, if they're responsive to X, Y, or Z, if they're based off conditions, lots of, and, and so these, they're really valuable in the sense that they, they allow us to talk about how specifically a specific gene was made. And from a function perspective, they always form the same function. So again, going back to, as a scientist, you're always looking for a limited number of readouts. So in this case, we can look at a specific gene and say, we got this specific gene, which means that I can now purify my system. I can have a stretch of DNA with that gene, including all of its UTRs that we talked about, these untranslated regions. Plus, I can purify my, my RNA polymerase, my GTFs, and then I can start adding in these um, specific transcription factors. Um, which might be a complex, might be a single protein. Again, lots of variability there, but the cool thing is you can actually rebuild this in vitro. So you can completely rebuild it in vitro, and you have a real simple assay that you can do you know, over and over again and get really good at it and know exactly when it's working. And you can actually get to the point where you can, you can do this in multimers. So we used to do this in uh, 384... Uh, experimental conditions at once. You'd have your controls plus 380 different conditions. So if you think about it, it gives you a lot of ability to quickly start to scale up and answer a lot of questions. And you're only limited by how many you can wrap your head around at once. But you make each one of them a simple yes or no. And then the important part is how you do the analysis for how you combine the yes or no's to get to an actual answer. So what that means with respect to chromatin is that we found out that, that the histones, because they're bound together and then bound to DNA into this kind of cookie plus licorice, or the beads on the string, whichever analogy gives you a picture in your head, that there was a couple really important things. One was that they, the, the, the licorice and the cookie had to be wrapped around each other, and you couldn't get it to work unless you had a certain amount, certain part of the, the sequence. And you and it couldn't work unless you had um, a certain type of GTF and you had to activate it. So we knew that there was enzymes in there, which is which was the first hint about how complex this was going to get. Um, and so <laughs> and so putting on my hat, I have a feeling that one of the experiments that got done is somebody got so frustrated and they started making doing the experiment incorrectly. And this happens. I mean, scientists are people. And and at some point they cut the histone proteins. And so then they reran the experiment and it worked. And it worked better than it ever worked and they probably were so excited until they realized they're until they realized that they're missing part of the the base of the protein. And what do I mean by that? So let's take a quick form function experiment, a lesson. So histones are weird proteins. So again, 
we have the cookie, which is all four histones, H, H2, two versions of H2, H3, and H4. In addition to that blobby part of the body, which you know you put together and you get the, co the, the cookie core, it has an arm that sticks off of it. So each one has an arm. So it kind of looks like a if you had a piece of spaghetti that is reasonably al dente sticking out of a cookie. And that's kind of what it looks like because these tails or arms are flexible but every time they flex they change the protein core. And that's an important point to understand. It took forever for people to understand. So what the experiments that were started to get done was you take your chromatin which has histones with the tails and you slice off all the tails. It's, easy, it's actually pretty easy to do. Um, you can do it by accident or you can do it on purpose. <laughs> I have a feeling the first time it happened, it happened by accident. So now you take these tailless cookie slices or these spaghetti-less cookie slices that are t bound together by a piece of DNA and all of a sudden transcription goes gangbusters. It's, it's a million times better than when the tails are there. So you have that aha moment. Ah, histone tails must be a negative regulator of RNA polymerase. And if you thought that, you'd be dead wrong. But at least you'd have a hypothesis that you can test in an experimental condition. So now you can add back the tails. You can add back just the H3 tails, just the H4 tails, etc., etc. And what you find is that there are a whole bunch of conditions that actually matter. Again, going back to this, this multiplexing of the experiments. What you then do is you then start to look at what are the combos, what's happening, how is this working. So not for nothing, what somebody found out is that if we do, again, going back to this weight experiment, one of the first experiments to try and do is if I take a, as a, for doing discovery, is if I take this mix, at what point can I stop adding new proteins and get the same effect? So if I purify from a, from a cell this group of, of proteins and I just dump it in there, can I use, for example, if I take the tailless histones in chromatin and get activity and I start adding back purified tails, which I know sounds gruesome, um, at what point do I gain more activity or do I lose activity? And you, and you keep doing this and, and, the, and you then can get it down to the point where you're looking at some purified protein. And what I mean by that is, so let's take this mix and it's got 20 proteins in it. And we add back histone H3 tails. When you add that, you're going to get to a point where you're going to have a change in your activity. You can measure... I get five times the amount of RNA out of this system, out of this in vitro system, than I got before. And then you can start to say, well, if I start to, again, because we know how to break up protein complexes based off of ch mild changes to salt and other things, which we know don't affect their form and therefore their function, but don't allow them to bind to their partners. We can start to break that 20 proteins down to 10, down to 5, down to 2, down to 1. So as you do those experiments, you can then take that one protein and you can sequence it. You can say, okay, what are the amino acids that are involved in 
creating that protein. You can then take that and look at the look at what other proteins that we've already sequenced, what do they do? And so the short version is what en ends up happening is that you look at these and they, they look they look like an enzyme. But they don't really look like their closest cousins at all. And what I mean by that is so when you think about an enzyme, you're really thinking about kind of a bowl and a lighter. It's the way that I like to think about it. So you have the bowl, which has a very unique shape, so it's more of these kind of more of an art deco bowl. Um, and you can only have a, an exact fit. So there's there is a substrate or there's something that fits exactly in that bowl. And there's only one or two things that fit exactly in that bowl. And then you have a lighter. And the reason I use the lighter analogy is because most enzymes require something to to burn, to do their job, whether that is ATP or something else. Um, and, and again, as any time we're talking about biochemistry, form follows function. They're, they're intimately related. So the way the shape of the bowl plus the size of the lighter, where the lighter goes into the bowl, all these things matter for what kind of enzyme it is. And the class or nearest cousins to what they sequenced when they again did all these experiments and they got it down to this one specific transcription factor is didn't look like an enzyme that actually worked. We'd never seen activity. Um, the assumption was that this was an evolutionary dead end and, and there'd been a mutation that allowed it to work as a binding agent but not as an enzyme. Obviously, if I'm telling this story, that's not true. <laughs> through a lot of hard work, um, through a lot of unique experiments, again, doing those multiplexing where we purify things and then we, we add 380 conditions and then we see which ones worked, which ones might have worked, and then we keep teasing this away. Eventually, we got to the point where we found out these, these enzymes use a unique substrate. What's a substrate? The tail. Um, so... And not only that, but they have a unique, unique energy source, and a unique um, group that they add. So they we call these the histone modifying enzymes, and this is a big, huge group. Um, and they do different things to different uh, histones, and they add different substrates. So they modify the histone tails and the histone bodies. But we're going to focus on the tails for a minute. They modify the histone tails in such a way that they add either a methyl group or an acetyl group. Or a, or a phosphate. So all these things that add different weights. And again, going back to the weight thing, we can then see the that the histone tails move differently through the matrix and or through the Plinko machine. And we can we can discover that they add different weights. Very very quote unquote easy once you actually figure out how to turn the enzyme on. Once we learned to turn the enzyme on, um, it was actually pretty quick, and you started to see papers come out really quickly defining each one of these different enzymes. What we didn't figure out and what didn't make sense is how they affect RNA polymerase again because um, typically you have either a yes or no and the answer was <laughs> yes for this one no for that one didn't make sense until you started being able to do the combinations. And what do I mean by that? 
So, for example, my when I was working in Ramin Shikhar's lab, we spent all our time on this one small family. So it's now known as the KDM5 family. Um, and there's two proteins in there. They look exactly the same. The nuances on how they're different um, were nearly imperceptible. You couldn't tell them apart, really. Um, but we knew that if you had a system with with KDM5A versus KDM5B, you got different results. So one turned RNA polymerase off, one turned it on. But they seem to have the same, they seem to catalyze the same reaction, they seem to work on the same part of the, the histone, but surprise, surprise, they actually don't. <laughs> one works on this really specific um, part of the tail, so uh, the fourth amino acid, and one works on the ninth amino acid. Same histone, so histone H3, you modify, you add a methyl group to, to the fourth amino acid, RNA goes gangbusters, turns on, um, doesn't matter the cell type, all kinds of conditions that works. You modify, you add a methyl group to, to amino acid number nine of H3. So again, not a whole lot of difference. You know, you're only talking about four amino acid difference. That's not going to change the world. Completely opposite effect. Turns off transcription, doesn't matter the gene, doesn't matter the system. It's a very generic effect. So, you know, it takes a little while to do that. So what you start to find is that other groups, in the, as, as we're doing these experiments and finally kind of figuring this out um, <laughs> through a lot of sleepless nights and uh, a shortened Christmas, um, is that somebody else had been working on the exact same little dinky stretch of protein on the same protein, you know, so amino acid number four, amino acid number nine, and they found that if you added acetyl group to, to nine, you got this, you got gangbusters. RNA goes gangbusters. So then you're like, huh, okay, so what's going on here? Are we both right? Or do we, are we looking at cell-specific experiments? The short version is they're both right. And as you start to do this, and again, over the course of three, four, five years because it takes forever to do these experiments, it takes forever to mul to do them in such a way that you're confident that you you've gotten it right. Because it because there's so many variables in here to just get that yes or no answer. Over time, a picture um, comes up of different modifications, and they're used in combination, and that's how we get these really specific effects. So, for example, um, again. I hinted at this at the beginning, these complexes typically are variable. You know, what an enzyme, what these histone modifying enzymes usually are partnered with are very specific transcription factors. So for example, you have this generic enzyme, but it usually in a neuron, if it turns on genes, it's really usually only associated with genes that are turned on by the neuro-specific transcription factors which is really cool because now we can go aha that's how it turned genes on that's how in development we went from generic cell where these histone modifying enzymes were associated with generic transcription factors to neuron 
we took the, the specific transcription factors and we, we, we gave the specific transcription factors control over the histone modifying enzymes, which means that you could only get turned on if you're a neural gene, a brain gene. Obviously that's a way oversimplification, but it's, it's a cool part that allows us to talk about these combinations. And this is how we get into that rheostat, because now we can have a system of yes and no's. So again, going, we're getting closer to designing a computer in the cell. A series of yes and no's that when, when created in, in parallel on the same gene, can allow you to turn it on for a little while, can learn, allow you to turn it on a little while for, and a lot, can allow you to turn it on not so much, just enough for baseline. So you can build up the system where you have a baseline, you have a, you can, you can have, you know, the ability to do a short burst, to do a long burst, to change your baseline based off of a series of yes and no's on these different amino acids on these different histones. And this is now kind of the whole basis of how um, transcription factors work, is they, they, change, they tweak the rheostat. You have this basic system, and if you're a neural type gene, you have a basic within yourself. If you're a neural, if you're a brain cell, you'll have a basic amount of brain stuff you need to make. So if we just go dopamine, um, we want to make X amount of dopamine because we use X amount of dopamine on a daily basis. So we make X amount of dopamine, and then we find out that we need to, we get a signal from our neighbor that says, hey, something's coming down the pipe. You're gonna need more. You should probably ramp up, and I'll let you know when you should ramp up. <clears throat> so now you, you prime the system. So you make these changes on these amino acids that are mildly additive, but they don't really do too much. And you start to add them in different places so they're not combined, but they're spread out. And then you can just go back and add new changes to the other place. It's, it's a really complex system that was that bedeviled people forever because it's just almost impossible to do an experiment, wrap your head around it, until you give this, this, this corpus of knowledge, this body of knowledge across multiple genes, across multiple cell types that allows the picture to, to come into focus. It's kind of like those pixel pictures that you, that um, uh, Monet, I think that's who created those, used to create where everything was a dot. So if you got too close, you couldn't see what it was. But if you're far enough away, you could see this really cool, you know, people eating in the park. Um, so, we've gotten to this point where now we know that there's these combinations and we know actually what got really cool is now because we know this rheostat and we know this rheostat can be tuned based on cell type it allowed a variety of scientists to start really going into well how would this work in a, in different diseases how would we affect different diseases based off of our understanding of these combinations so then you can start to take breast cancer therapies that work, but they don't work great. And maybe we can supercharge that therapy by adding a, a drug that affects the activity of the histone modifying enzymes. And we're, we're not there yet. We don't have it 100% figured out, 
but we're getting there. We know from some work that my group had done and some other groups that the if you inhibit some of these enzymes, you can actually turn off the cancer properties but have the cell stay alive. So instead of having really toxic chemotherapy, which kills um, both healthy cells and and unhealthy cells because you're in a circumstance where basically, so most chemotherapies work by killing cells that, that divide a lot. So, but you do have cells that need to divide a lot. Um, most of the therapies aren't real targeted. And that's why, again, when we do chemo, sometimes people lose their hair or they lose their appetite or, or they lose things that should be, they, that aren't part of the cancer but they, they have cells that, that, that divide at a high rate, and so we, can't, we, as a side effect, we kill those cells. The good news is that non-cancerous cells that have a high rate of proliferation or making new copies of themselves typically have a reservoir. So this is the idea of stem cells. Um, what we can do rather than targeting everything and just hoping that the stem cells survive enough, we keep enough stem cells to, to repopulate your hair and these other things. We start to target and say, okay, we're gonna add this chemo drug that's specific for breast cancers that kind of just only kind of works. And we're gonna now add this other histomodifying enzyme killer, this drug towards that. And the combination of these two are now going to give us a better effect. And this is a, a lot of these combo therapies that you'll start to see coming out and are, are already coming out. And with that, I'm going to, I'm going to close this episode off. Um, I think the important part for you to take away from this is that when we talk about, when you see in the media, these generalizations, um, part of what's going on is we just don't know how to explain ongoing science. Um, this is all live. Uh, for context, it typically takes 10 to 30 years to really understand a single process. We only really started to understand these enzymes six, five, six years ago. We're still trying to define what they actually do and who they partner with. We don't understand the basics of the biochemistry and the biophysics to explain the complex stuff. And so, you know, anytime you hear epigenetics and epigenetic changes and genetic changes and we're changing your DNA and all this other stuff, it's these ham-handed attempts at explaining really complex biology that is in the works. And we, for whatever reason, we've lost the, the confidence to say this is in progress. The media is so rampant about needing something new to talk about that we don't forget that just because that this is ongoing, this is dynamic science that's being done, it's really cool. I love the idea that we talk about in the public, but we need to say we don't understand it 100%. We've gotta get back to the point where, we, where scientists say that and they say it loudly and proudly. Um, and the media has to convey that message in such a way that it doesn't look like they're lying or they're cheating, but that we're, we're explaining that we're legitimately in the middle of the process. And with that, I'll get off my soapbox uh, and say thank you. <laughs>